This is Guns and Butter. WHO Director General, who had been in Davos just a few days earlier, determined that the so-called outbreak constituted a public health emergency of international concern. And I, as I mentioned, that decision was taken on the basis of 150 confirmed cases outside China. Now, anybody who takes cognizance of that should not trust anything else that they say. Because at the beginning, it's a big lie. And it's a big lie which is instrumented by very powerful people. It's the combination of what I call big money and big pharma. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Michelle Chosarovsky. Today's show, COVID-19 coronavirus, the crisis. Michelle Chosarovsky is an economist and the founder, director, and editor of the Center for Research on Globalization, based in Montreal, Quebec. He is the author of 11 books, including The Globalization of Poverty and the New World Order, War and Globalization, The Truth Behind September 11th, America's War on Terrorism, and The Globalization of War, America's Long War Against Humanity. Today we discuss the historical background and lead-up to the World Health Organization's January 30th Declaration of a Public Health Emergency of International Concern. The Event 201, Simulation of a Coronavirus Pandemic, the World Economic Forum, Financial Warfare, and the Economic and Human Toll of the Declared Pandemic. Michel Chosodowski, welcome. Good morning. Delighted to be on Guns and Butter. The United States government has now declared the COVID-19 virus a global pandemic. Your article, COVID-19 Coronavirus Fake Pandemic, Timeline and Analysis, begins with the January 30th, 2020 World Health Organization Declaration of a Public Health Emergency of International Concern in relation to China's novel coronavirus 2019 NCOV categorized as a viral pneumonia. Both the timing and intent of the WHO's declaration raise serious questions. Where is the best place to start and examine just what is behind this now global disruption? Well, first of all, I should mention, and this is where all the lies come in, is that on the 30th of January, the global public health emergency was declared on the orders of the Director General of the WHO. Um, There have been recent statements that this public health emergency has been declared, but in fact, it was declared on the 30th of January, but nobody wants to talk about that for the simple reason that at that time, there were only 150 confirmed 
cases outside of China. In other words, we're talking about a population of 6.4 billion, excluding China, which is 1.4, out of world population of 7.8 billion. And there they go ahead and declare a global pandemic. I mean, there's certain definitions of a pandemic, but 150 uh, cases does not justify it. But in fact, it did. But it was dictated by by very powerful um, uh, economic interests. So we're starting with a lie. But the thing is, we're starting with a lie on January 30th. And then on January 31st, what happens? Immediately, um, the Trump administration uh, calls for um, a ban on air travel to China. In other words, um, a declaration to the effect that um, both Chinese and foreign travelers will not be admitted to the United States. Uh, this has the impact, the, the effect of uh, essentially um, intimidating people, uh, closing down um, trade and um, trade transactions. We're talking about, uh, you know, a very important volume of, of trade and transportation with China, uh, affecting, of course, major airlines and shipping companies. So that happened on the 31st. We're, we're talking about a timeline. On the 31st of January, Trump already uh, launches, um, uh, launches a hate campaign against China. And there was no uh, health issue of concern because 150 cases worldwide outside China is virtually nothing as far as risk is concerned. And um, then we, we, we see the evolution of this, of this crisis. And what I'm saying, and we must be very clear on that, is that this is not a biological war against China or against anybody else, it is the use of the coronavirus as a pretext to implement drastic changes uh, which affect economic activity, trade, transportation, which ultimately uh, has an impact on national economies. It sort of pushes national economies uh, into more or less into a situation of, of, of crisis. And um, at the outset, we were dealing with economic warfare supported by a media campaign. Uh, and this was coupled with a deliberate intent by the Trump administration to undermine Chinese economy. But I think we should be clear that the media disinformation campaign was fundamental because, first of all, they never mentioned that, that it was 150 cases to start with. And they've always distorted the figures um, with regard to the, the extension of, of this, of this um, health threat uh, throughout the world. What is the WHO Emergency Committee? Well, the WHO Emergency Committee is, is a specialized committee made up of, um, of um, you know, of specialists. 
And I should mention that uh, they first met on the 22nd of January, and there were divisions within the committee as to whether they had the justification to actually declare a pandemic. And then when they met on the 30th, the meeting on the 30th took place shortly after the Davos World Economic Forum, which took place from the 21st to the 24th of, of January. And at that meeting, there were important, well, there were important discussions between uh, different uh, partners, including the World Economic Forum, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and various um, entities linked up to, the, to Big Pharma. And those consultations at the World Economic Forum were essentially um, instrumental to the decision taken on the on the 30th, it, it, it happened just about a week later. And uh, it was essentially the World Economic Forum, the Gates Foundation, uh, a body uh, called CP, which, uh, which is the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations uh, for the Development of Vaccines. Already there was, there were discussions with Big Pharma, uh, GlaxoSmithKline, which is also integrated into this group. Uh, there were discussions with the uh, IMF and the World Bank, with the State Department, with uh, US intelligence, and uh, one suspects that the decisions were taken a few days before, because when they met on January 30th in Geneva, um, there was virtually no discussion. The WHO Director General, who had been in Davos just a few days earlier, um, determined that the so-called outbreak constituted a public health emergency of international concern. And I, as I mentioned, that decision was taken on the basis of 150 confirmed cases outside China. Now, anybody who takes cognizance of that should not trust anything else that they say, because at the beginning, it's a big lie. And it's a big lie, which is instrumented by very powerful people. It's the combination of what I call big money and big pharma. And essentially, they uh, initiated this process. They also have a vaccine program. And ironically, the vaccine program was was in a sense, it was also announced at Davos um, before even having a pandemic. It was announced at Davos um, and discussed, and it was only it was only uh, in February, much later in February, that that the vaccination campaign was announced by the World Health Organization. In fact, it was February twenty eighth. On February 28th, in other words, it was almost, it was a month later, Dr. Tedros uh, uh, of WHO announces that a massive WHO vaccination campaign has, has been approved by the World Health Organization. And who is behind that campaign? GlaxoSmithKline. 
in partnership with the Coalition for Ep Epidemic Preparedness Innovations, which is a Gates WEF, uh, World Economic Forum Partnership. And um, another important thing is that back in October, on October the 18th, the Gates Foundation, together with the World Economic Forum, and in partnership with John Hopkins uh, School of Public Health, but it, it was a very specific component of the School of Public Health. It was the Bloomberg, well, John Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. You can see that John Hopkins School of Public Health is already linked to Wall Street, but it was the Center for Health Security. So there you have a partnership between the uh, the Center for Health Security, the World Economic Forum, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and what do they do on October 16th? They, they envisage, this was of course way before the initial announcement of the coronavirus, which was at the beginning of January, when the Chinese authorities uh, discovered it and started testing it. And so they discovered it on January 1st, and then on January 7th, they actually came up with, with lab exams and so on. But back in October, October 18th, there, there was a simulation of a coronavirus pandemic. It was called Event 201. And that um, simulation was integrated by a whole series of people from mainly private financial institutions, uh, corporate execs, foundations, big pharma, CIA. There was a representative from the CDC, but there were no health officials on behalf of national governments or the WHO. And it, it was essentially a simulation which included quite a number of things, including, including the collapse of stock markets, uh, the extension of the virus to something like 65 million people, um, and so on and so forth. Now, uh, what I'm, I think, suggesting without necessarily uh, drawing conclusions is that the organizations involved in the simulation, which was a detailed simulation with videos and so on, examining what would happen uh, you know, to financial markets, what would happen to the media, to the independent media, um, and, and so on. And uh, essentially, the people involved in the simulation were also involved in the actual management of the pandemic once it went live, okay? So the, the people who were simulating actually went live on January 30th, 2020, which was the day when uh, that pandemic was launched. And I should mention that, that the people who actually were behind the WHO uh, meeting on the sidelines of Davos uh, are the same people who organized and financed the pandemic, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation uh, and the World Economic Forum and the Bloomberg uh, School of Public Health. 
So there you are. You simulate and then you and then you go live. I'm not suggesting any kind of, you know, any kind of uh, um, conspiratorial relationship, but I'm just saying there was a simulation. Um, there was a simulation and, and a couple of months later, the whole thing goes live uh, with the same actors uh, involved in the simulation who are now involved in saving the world from, from the coronavirus. I'm speaking with economist and director of the Center for Research on Globalization, Michel Chosodovsky. Today's show, COVID-19 Coronavirus, The Crisis. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Now, there's another element, whether it is relevant or not, is that on October 18th, Event 201, Baltimore, Coronavirus Simulation and Emergency Preparedness Task Force at John Hopkins Bloomberg School of, of Health Security, they identified the virus under the acronym NCOV-219. I'll repeat, NCOV-219. Now, when the actual uh, virus was discovered two months later. It was early Jan, so okay, two and a half months later. To be precise, it was on January the 7th that the Chinese authorities identified uh, a new type of virus. Uh, they isolated it on 7 January, and the coronavirus was named by the WHO as 219NCOV, okay? Exactly the same name as that adopted in the World Economic Forum Gates John Hopkins October 18th uh, 219 simulation exercise. So it's as if they took that name and they stuck it into the, uh, well, it became then, of course, a real uh, pandemic. But bear in mind, at a later date, they changed the name they must have realized that that name was, was um, mis misleading because it was the name of a, of a simulation. But uh, it started up as 219NCOV, and then after that, they, they, they adopted the, the COVID-19. Um, but that happened, I think that happened almost a, a month later. And these were names which were attributed to the virus by the World Health Organization. Well, it seems to me that they had to change the name because it was too big of a giveaway as to what was going on. Well, I, I, I don't want to draw any kind of implications. I'm just saying it, it, it appears odd that they would choose the same name for the virus as the one which they had for the simulation. And uh, mind you, it, the NCOV reflects more what it is. It, N stands for novel and CO coronavirus. It was a novel coronavirus. Now, uh, I think to avoid any confusions, they then uh, adopted a different name uh, to that of the, you know, of the, the simulation and exercise. Nobody denies that these simulations took place. There's a video, I'm going to play that video for you. 
uh, and I think it's the video from the from the simulation. Well, they have tons of videos. You can go through it, but but let's say this video is so incredible because it it it's the first few uh, minutes. Okay, well here it is. Okay, we will now advance three weeks to the fourth and final meeting of the Pandemic Emergency Board on December 18th, 2019. Okay, thank you for reconvening and let's get an update from Dr. Rivers. In the last three weeks, case numbers have continued to grow exponentially. We now have an estimated 4.2 million cases and 240,000 deaths. Almost every country is now reporting cases and those who aren't may simply not have the resources to conduct surveillance. We don't see any change in the rate of rapid spread and models estimate that we could have more than 12 million cases and close to a million deaths by mid-January. We're not sure how big this could get, but there's no end in sight. Financial markets are universally down by 15% or more on the year. Fear of a catastrophic pandemic and uncertainty about the capacity for governments to respond. And um, when, uh, when the organizers of the simulation were confronted, particularly at the, at the height of the financial crash end of February, uh, they, they said, well, we're not predicting anything. We're not predicting what happened. We're just simulating. But it just so happens that, um, in, in fact, it was practically word by word that they simulated a collapse, an initial collapse of financial markets of, quote, 15% or more. Now, I, I checked the financial press in late February. In late February, uh, I checked the financial press and, um, and Bloomberg and the Wall Street Journal, and that was exactly what happened. And they used the same words, 15% or more uh, was the collapse of money markets at that time. Now, since then, the situation has evolved. But the, the thing is that this simulation, um, this simulation was not taken by an independent body of scientists and researchers and economists. No, it wasn't. It was taken by big money and big pharma. Big money and big pharma were simulating. And then, uh, meanwhile, and before the uh, the pandemic was actually declared on, on um, January 30th, and, and there was no basis for declaring that pandemic, because there were only 150 cases out China, about, what, uh, six cases in the U.S., three in Canada, two in, the, two in the U.K. And, well, we have the complete list. It's provided by the World Health Organization. But before that historic venue, there was already a vaccination program which was uh, ongoing by different pharmaceutical companies. Michelle, I'd like to go over some of this in greater detail. You write that, quote, the World Health Organization did not act to reassure and inform world public opinion, quite the opposite. A fear pandemic rather than a genuine public health emergency of international concern, was launched. 
Would you describe this development as a media disinformation campaign? Well, absolutely. And I, I don't think that the World Health Organization um, spearheaded the media disinformation campaign. The media disinformation campaign was already embedded with, with the organizations who were behind this initiative. In other words, the, the foundations, the World Economic Forum and so on. I mean, the media campaign, if it had been real news, they should have, first of all, they should have said the decision of the WHO borders on ridicule. It's in violation of its mandate. You don't declare a pandemic for 150 people. Okay? Punto. Six in America, two in Canada, three in the United Kingdom and so on. Now, I think that should have been put forth, that this historic January 30th decision was a big lie. And it was not only a big lie, it, it, it was the launch pad of a, of a process of ultimately economic warfare. Uh, I, I should uh, clarify, because there's a lot of confusion, this is not a biological, this is not biological warfare, because the coronavirus is not a dangerous uh, a dangerous virus. It, it has certain similarities with other uh, viruses. It, it's, it triggers pneumonia, then there's a recovery process. And uh, in fact, if we look at, at recent developments, the pandemic in China is more or less resolved. They've announced that virtually 80% or more than 80% of, um, of confirmed cases have been resolved. Now, the media will not discuss that because once they say, oh, people are recovering, are getting well and so on, that, that sort of undermines, you know, the panic. What they want to do is trigger panic. And that's what people are, are doing right now. It's fear and intimidation. It's panic. Uh, people feel threatened and uh, the authorities are taking actions which is not protecting people's health, but ultimately doing exactly the opposite. Now, I'm not saying that that coronavirus is not a health concern. It really is. But what is, is more of a concern are all the millions of people who lost their jobs uh, as a result of coronavirus, not to mention those who lost their lifelong savings on the stock exchange. Okay? Think of all the smaller... Uh, you know, investors who who put their money with their broker and so on. And what happens? They lose everything when the market collapses. Now, that is, of course, a concern. And that has also health implications. Some people commit suicide when they lose their savings. Uh, but that simply is it's considered as part of a market mechanism. It's not part of a market mechanism. It is part of a process of manipulation through sophisticated speculative instruments, such as short selling. We know that. And if you have foreknowledge that um, uh, President Trump is going to implement um, a ban on, on uh, transatlantic travel to the European Union, immediately those who have foreknowledge can speculate on the collapse of the airlines, of the airline stocks. It's very easy. They, they place a bet, and if it goes down, they make money, and they know it's going to go down. 
So that is where, of course, these powerful corporate interests and, and financiers and hedge funds are making a tremendous amount of money. And what we are witnessing now is a transfer of money wealth, a concentration of money wealth, which I think is unprecedented. It's perhaps one of the largest transfers of money wealth in modern history. Um, in other words, it's characterized by bankruptcies of small and medium-sized firms, mounting debt, mounting personal debts, uh, corporate debts, uh, the takeover of uh, competing companies. And in a sense, it's characterized by conflicts within the financial establishment. You know, it's not only a war against China. At the beginning, it appeared to be an, an economic war against China, which uh, led to the closing down of trade and, and, and shipping and so on, where factories had to close down and so on, not to mention the, the tourist industry. But it is more than that, because it also affects the internal um, balance of power within the financial establishment. Um, the fact that the airlines are, are the victims of this is significant, because the airlines, their, their stock may collapse, um, and then, of course, they'll be bought up. And, and that means that there's been a redistribution not only of money wealth, but also, also of real wealth. These are assets without pointing to, to the fact that the existence of the coronavirus, which generates uncertainty, panic, is, is ultimately the ideal environment for people who want to speculate and make money at the expense of those who have savings, at the expense of small businesses, and at the expenses of perhaps competing corporations. That's the situation we're in. And I don't recall any period in our recent history that is comparable to what we're living now, where entire economies are in a standstill. I'm thinking of Western Europe, uh, Italy, where people are ordered to stay at home and so on. And this ultimately has been achieved uh, under the, the pretext, the pretext of a virus, of a coronavirus. They said we must protect our population, so let's close down the economy. Well, you don't protect your population by closing down an economy. You can take certain public health uh, actions uh, which are selective and well thought out, but that's not what's happening. I'm speaking with economist and director of the Center for Research on Globalization, Michel Chosodovsky. Today's show, COVID-19 Coronavirus, The Crisis. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Getting back to the virus, you write, quote, Remember the unusual circumstances surrounding the April 2009 H1N1 swine flu pandemic. What were these unusual circumstances? Was the data manipulated? Um, this is not the first time that uh, the WHO 
has declared a fake pandemic. I'm talking about uh, the decision taken on the 30th of January, where we only had 150 people outside of China who were, who were confirmed cases. Uh, in 2009, April, uh, there was another case, which was called the H1N1 swine flu pandemic. And the same atmosphere of fear and intimidation prevailed. The, the process was somewhat different, but the statements made by the WHO Director General at the time were far-reaching because uh, Margaret Chan, WHO Director General in 2009, stated with authority that as many, I'm quoting from the World Health Organization, as many as 2 billion people could become infected over the next two years, nearly one third of the world population. Now, what was Margaret Chan involved in, in making this statement? It was a multi-billion dollar bonanza for Big Pharma, which was instructed by the WHO Director General Margaret Chan to implement a massive vaccination program. She further states uh, later on the following, and again, I'm quoting, vaccine makers could produce 4.9 billion pandemic flu shots per year in the best case scenario. Can you imagine 4.9 billion pandemic flu shots per year in the best case scenario. In other words, this was a green light to the vaccine producers to produce billions of flu shots uh, for the H1N1. And it was also a green light to national governments to actually purchase these billions of, of flu shots from, uh, from the pharmaceutical companies. Now, it turned out that th this um, campaign in 2009, which was launched by the WHO, relied on fake news, fake statistics, and lies at the highest levels of government. And uh, when it was debated under the Obama administration, Obama actually said swine flu could strike up to 40% of Americans over the next two years. And as many as several hundred thousand could die if a vaccine campaign and other measures aren't successful. And um, there were, there were several statements, Associated Press, the U.S. expects to have 160 million doses of swine flu vaccine available sometime in October. That statement was made in July of 2009. Um, Business Week, uh, wealthier countries such as the U.S. and Britain will pay just under $10 per dose 
for the H1N1 flu, developing countries will pay a lower price, uh, and so on. Um, this was a multi-billion dollar fraud in favor of, of Big Pharma. And uh, in fact, there was no pandemic. Uh, millions of doses of swine flu vaccine had been ordered by national governments. Millions of vaccine doses were subsequently destroyed. Uh, there was a problem of collecting the data as to whether it was the seasonal flu influenza virus B or whether it was a swine flu vaccine. The data was manipulated and uh, there was ultimately no investigation in, into who was behind this multi-billion dollar fraud. But I think we have to acknowledge because things sometimes come much later, that in the wake of that fake pandemic, there was a meeting of the Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe, which is a, a human rights watchdog, and they questioned the motivations of the WHO, and they actually made the statement that the World Health Organization was involved in conflict of interest and that the pandemic was fake. And that investigation is on record with the European Parliament. And uh, there we have an example of, of what happened. There were no economic uh, and social implications as as exists today. There were no uh, actions to repeal, uh, you know, air travel and so on. But let's say from the point of view of, of the vaccination program, that vaccination program was launched and ultimately it was totally dysfunctional and the pharmaceutical companies cashed in to large amounts of money, which were largely funded by taxpayers expenses because it it was the budget of the ministries of health and then of course the h1n1 mutated okay so the vaccines were totally useless the, it's very similar to a, to a seasonal flu pandemic there's a mutation of the virus i recall in canada the ministry of health ordered millions of of doses of the vaccine and then they acknowledged they said well we can't use them because you know the the h1n1 virus has mutated and so what they did is that they said well we're going to send that in the form of aid to developing countries which in in effect was also a fraud because the the vaccine couldn't be used from a health point of view but then they decided simply to, to send it off to some uh, country in Latin America or, or Sub-Saharan Africa, knowing that the virus in itself had mutated and, and uh, that these uh, vaccines were totally useless. So there we have a situation where the director general of the WHO um, gives the green light to Big Pharma making erroneous statements 
to the fact that billions of people across the world will be affected, as many as two billion, she said, uh, and we must act, and Big Pharma comes to the rescue, and in effect, the vaccine makers made a bundle of money at the expense of the public purse. Well, now, in the current situation, uh, coming up to 2020, you've been talking about 2009, you write that the campaign to develop vaccines was initiated prior to the decision of the WHO to launch a global public health emergency. Is that right? Well, that's correct, because um, there are two things. Well, there are several things. One, there was a decision which was taken at Davos, where they actually they actually stated that a vaccine campaign was necessary. And that was taken, that decision precedes the pandemic by about a week. But there are indications that, in fact, for them to have made that statement, the companies involved were already working on a vaccine. Now, I can't uh, say exactly when they started, but certainly uh, well before the, the World Economic Forum and certainly well before the launching of, um, of the pandemic. And mind you, the number of cases was so small in late January of 2020, it was 150 cases outside China. Those are WHO statistics. Now, uh, you're not going to initiate a vaccine uh, campaign internationally for 150 people. But uh, I think that there must have been some kind of foreknowledge that eventually the pandemic would move forward uh, with a fear campaign, the media disinformation, and that ultimately the recipients would be the vaccine producers, Big Pharma. And, and they already had um, a working relationship with the foundations uh, they were they were involved in the consultations in in Davos. They were also directly or indirectly involved, you know, in the simulation scenario back in October. Okay, so maybe the simulation back in October is what uh, gave the green light to to Big Pharma, and I I, I think that's certainly feasible because they were already talking about vaccinations uh, in the simulation. So the simulation was was talking about the need to develop vaccines for their hypothetical uh, NCOV virus, as it was called at the time. Uh, and there was also evidence that before the pandemic was actually uh, officially launched in 30th of January, that the, the vaccination program had been announced at Davos. Now, there's another important announcement that was made, but it came a month later, and that was by the WHO saying, I think it was in late February or, or mid to late February, uh, when the WHO confirmed categorically that there was the need for a, a vaccination campaign. 
but that statement was made after the industry uh, took the decision to develop the vaccines. And there are quite a number of companies involved. Well, what is CEPI? What does that stand for? Is this a vaccine organization? Yes, the CEPI is a very important um, body and, and also actor in this whole process. Uh, it, it is the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations. And it is essentially part of the World Economic Forum Gates Partnership. And uh, they made an announcement quite early in the game uh, to the fact that they would be supporting, uh, they would be funding several programs to develop vaccines against the so-called coronavirus. At that time, it was called NCOV-219. Uh, and uh, the CP works in consultation with uh, uh, the Gates Foundation and the WEF, and it also is tied into the pharmaceutical industry. Their major partner is GlaxoSmithKline. I'm speaking with economist and director of the Center for Research on Globalization, Michelle Chosodowski. Today's show, COVID-19 Coronavirus, The Crisis. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Now, at the same time as this simulation, Event 201 in Baltimore on October 18th, from October 18th to the 27th of October 2019, the CISM Military World Games were taking place in Wuhan, China. What are Military World Games, and who were the participants? Well, these are um, games, it's a sport event uh, which takes place, uh, I guess, once a year in different countries. Uh, there are more than 100 countries which participate and they send in members of the armed forces, but essentially for sport events. Some people call it the military Olympics. Now, what the Chinese authorities have raised uh, and this relates in a very direct way to the fact that the virus may not have originated in China, but may have originated in a foreign country, including the United States, is that there were 200 American military personnel participating in this 10-day event. And of course, they're there and they, and they, you know, they visit the city and they go around, et cetera, et cetera. And, and it has been intimated that the virus could have been either accidentally or deliberately uh, dropped somewhere in the seafood market in Wuhan. Now, we have absolutely no proof, but there, there are scientific assessments of the, of the virus, and it's a bit complex to explain, to the effect that uh, what they call uh, patient zero, which <laughs> there's patient zero and patient one. Well, the, the, the thing is, where is that patient zero? Uh, 
uh, is the patient zero in, in the United States? In other words, uh, assuming it, it comes either from an animal or from a lab, etc., and then it's transported to China. But I should say that what the Chinese, but also, also interestingly, the Chinese as well as Taiwanese and Japanese virologists have examined uh, looking at different strains of the virus in different locations, they have come to the conclusion that the virus was not made in China. At this very moment, there's a big debate in China uh, on whether the, the virus is made in China or made in America. And increasingly, the scientific evidence points uh, to the latter. And what is significant is that in recent developments, uh, we even have uh, uh, evidence which emanates, at least statements which emanate from the uh, director general of, uh, of the CDC. In other words, I'm talking about Robert Redfield, who made a statement just this week to the U.S. Congress uh, it was um, during hearings of the so-called House Oversight Committee. He, he, he makes statements to the fact that some of the diagnoses of the common flu in the United States, the seasonal flu, virus B, could have been coronavirus. Uh, th this was in a in a committee context, and he he answered the questions in a somewhat candid way, and he said, yes, in some cases, diagnosed as seasonal flu could have been coronavirus. Okay, listen, uh, Bonnie, there are two pieces of audio which I think you should broadcast. Okay. I'll broadcast the first one now, and you'll hear it. That is the, the one by Redfield. Okay. It's 30 okay. seconds. Okay. The University of Washington has developed their own test. Were those test kits available last Friday? Yes, sir. Thank you. And without test kits, is it possible that those that have been susceptible to influenza might have been miscategorized as to what they actually had, that it's quite possible that they actually had COVID-19? The standard practice is the first thing you do is test for influenza. So if they had influenza, they would be positive for influenza. But only if they were tested. So if they weren't tested, we don't know what they had. Correct. Okay. And if somebody dies from influenza, are we doing post-mortem testing to see whether it was influenza or whether it was COVID-19? There is a surveillance system of deaths from pneumonia that the CDC has. It's not in every city, every state, every hospital. So we could have people in the United States dying for what appears to be influenza when, in fact, it could be the coronavirus or COVID-19. Some cases have been actually diagnosed that way in the United States today. Thank you. Now, that statement corroborates the studies conducted in China and Japan and Taiwan. Um, but it also begs the question, when? Was it in October? Was it in November? Uh, was it in December? In other words, Redfield's statement doesn't say when those, um, uh, those um, 
influenza tests were, were conducted. Well, they're conducted on a routine basis. Presumably, if it's seasonal, it starts in November or October and it extends right through, you know, the winter. But what happened is that this statement, in effect, provides legitimacy to studies conducted by uh, both Japanese, Chinese, and Taiwan virologists uh, to the fact that it is possible that the virus did not originate in the seafood market in Wuhan. It actually could have uh, originated in the United States of America. And the Taiwan virologist uh, stated that, because he was following what was going on, that there were more than 200 pneumonia-type cases which uh, resulted in death in the United States. Uh, and it was triggered by the patient's inability to breathe. And then he said he was in touch with U.S. health authorities and he begged the question whether those deaths could have been the result of the coronavirus. And he also said that the, the virus outbreak may have begun at an earlier period than what is assumed, um, suggesting that it could even go back to September. Uh, and I, I presume it goes back to September because that's when the, 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 the flu virus actually starts to, to develop. But um, I, I think what's important is that one of our own authors, Larry Romanoff, who is based in Shanghai, has done extensive research on this issue. And uh, if we patch together the statements of, of um, Robert Redfield, the Japanese, Taiwanese, and Chinese studies, there's a good likelihood that the virus did not come from China, but it could well have originated in the United States. And it, it is a talking point in China at this very moment because the spokesperson uh, of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and the Chinese don't actually improvise in the same way as the Americans. Uh, they're, you know, their foreign policy stance but when they're commenting on, on the CDC director, Dr. Robert Redfield, uh, they say, well, you know, uh, this kind of uh, information has to, be, uh, has to be explained. And if the U.S. reported 34 million cases of influenza, that's, I think he's exaggerating, but that's what he says. Uh, that, I'm talking about the, the representative from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs I think it's more like 15 million. But in any event, he then concludes and says, please tell us how many are related to COVID-19. Um, and, and that is a, a twit, okay? So the, the Chinese also indulge in twits. And uh, what the director, Robert Redfield, has admitted uh, is that um, seemingly some people who died from influenza could have been tested positive for the, the coronavirus. Uh, and so the, this has opened up 
uh, Pandora's box, so to speak, because um, the consensus in China is that the virus was not made in China, it was made in America. Well, it remains to be fully assessed and, and so on, but it changes the rhetoric. And it also changes China's geopolitical position. Uh, China has now is at the stage where the pandemic is almost over. Uh, I think in a matter of a couple of weeks, they're going to go back to normal life uh, throughout the country. Uh, and then uh, they also uh, are now going to acknowledge that the possibility is that this virus did not originate in China. Michel Chosodovsky, thank you so much. Delighted to be on the program. This is a very important topic. Best wishes. I've been speaking with Michel Chosodovsky. Today's show has been COVID-19 Coronavirus, The Crisis. Michel Chosarovsky is the founder, director, and editor of the Center for Research on Globalization, based in Montreal, Quebec. The Global Research website, globalresearch.ca, publishes news articles, commentary, background research, and analysis. Since posting a series of very credible research articles on the novel coronavirus, Global Research's readership has exploded, and they have added many tens of thousands of new readers in China. Michel Chosarovsky is the author of 11 books, including The Globalization of Poverty and the New World Order, War and Globalization, The Truth Behind September 11th, and America's Long War Against Humanity. Visit globalresearch.ca. That's globalresearch.ca. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner, Yaromako, and Tony Rango. Visit us at gunsandbutter.org to listen to past programs, comment on shows, or join our email list to receive our newsletter that includes recent shows and updates. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.org. Follow us on Twitter at G&B Radio. Trying to steal your life